you have your Bible, join me in John chapter 12 this morning. John chapter 12. Hey, we've been looking at the Ten Commandments of Grace. Principles in Scripture about grace and how they apply to our life. We started off several weeks ago looking at the idea, first of all, that grace cannot be earned, it is given. For the wages of sin, what I earn for sin is death. But the gift, the grace, for by grace are you saved. When we look at grace, grace is not something that I deserve. It is not something I earn. It is given by God. It is His goodness. God began with Abraham all the way through until Moses. There was grace until the law came. God gives us so much grace. And we looked at how grace is not reserved for good people. Grace just simply underscores the goodness of God. God is good, and because of His goodness, He is good to people regardless of whether they believe in Him or not, regardless of whether they love Him or not, regardless of whether we're doing what's right or not. There's still grace that God shows towards each and every one of us. Then we looked at how grace is never just enough. It is always far more than enough. And how life-changing that principle is. And I want to pause here. This is not necessarily part of our message. But just with this thought that grace is never just enough, it's always far more enough. In our life right now, my wife and I and our family, there's a lot of moving parts going on. There just are. And Kara was in the hospital for weeks. She then gives birth to the twins early at 28 weeks. Well, because they're early, they end up in the NICU. Now, for us... We said, man, it'd be great if she could make it to 30 weeks instead of 28 weeks. Grace is never just enough. Grace is always far more than enough. Kara gives birth to the twins at 28 weeks. The twins are in the NICU right now. They're doing great. They're doing well. Almost three and a half pounds. Here we go. I mean, we're on our way. They're doing great. But in the middle of this, Kara's grandmother passes away. If she passed away two weeks before, we couldn't have gone to the funeral. Two weeks from now... We probably couldn't have gone because the twins may be in a stop where we couldn't go. But right now, it works out to where we can go. Grace is never just enough. It's always far more than enough. God's timing is always so perfect. And when you're looking for it, you see it every step of life. Then we looked at grace is always there when you need it most. When we are at that place where we just feel like I can't do any more, grace is there when you need it most. It was there in the life of Rahab. And when things couldn't get any worse, grace was perfect and complete, more than enough, and when she needed it most. Last week, we began this idea. We began looking at how discipline is often an expression of God's grace. And we looked at how even in David's life, when David did so many things wrong, that God so delighted in David that he chastened him as a father does a son to get David back to where he needed to be. And God does the exact same thing for you and I. And when you and I are in a place in our lives in which we are getting away from God, he brings his discipline not as a punitive measure, but as a restorative measure to bring us back to a place in which we can continue in fellowship with him. Grace and discipline go hand in hand when we use it right as parents, when we use it right as authority, 
and God uses it always right in our life. As we come now to John chapter 12, we see another tremendous truth about grace. And we see it as Christ's earthly ministry is coming to an end. You're in John chapter 12. I need you to skip back just a couple of verses into chapter 11, verse 54. There in verse 54, we see, Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple. What think ye, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. So Jesus is at this point in his earthly ministry. Now, certainly, he has a different perspective than you and I do on life's events because he knows exactly what's about to unfold. And Jesus, as he's coming to this end of his earthly ministry time frame, he recognizes that if he goes into Jerusalem, that his life is in danger. And so, because of what has happened with Lazarus, he has now become, if you will, a celebrity uh, in many ways. He is well-known, and at this point, the Pharisees want him gone. They are determined to take his life. So he knows that if he goes in to a public setting, that his life is on the line. He makes it clear. He goes into the wilderness, and he stays there for a while. When the Passover time comes, Jesus now recognizes that his hour has come. It is time, and at this point, it is time for him to pay for the sins of all mankind. Join me, if you will, chapter 12. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat there at the table. We see Jesus is anointed here at this point, And Jesus now has to make a decision about the Passover from an earthly point of view. Verse 12. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, the king cometh sitting on an ass's colt. And so here Jesus comes in, and we call this that time there where he's coming in at the Passover, and it is Palm Sunday is what we refer to it as. And he comes in, and there's this huge parade, this huge celebration. Now, the Pharisees have already told the people, if you see him, you let us know. We want to take him. He's going to jail. We're going to capture him, and their plans were to put him to death. But the people at this moment, because of what had happened with Lazarus, they're so excited and they believe that Jesus is coming to set up a new kingdom. He's going to establish here this new rule, set Jerusalem free from the Roman control, and he's going to lead them in a mighty battle of victory. But that was not Jesus' plan. Jesus had a great battle that was about to be fought, but it wasn't with man, it was with Satan. And this great battle was about to pay for all mankind's sin. But as he comes to this moment, everything from an earthly point of view says, don't go. Don't go. Don't walk in there. Don't don't even make an attempt. 
Because Jesus himself knew it. The, the Pharisees had declared it. And yet, he goes walking into Jerusalem. Look, if you will, in verse 17. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause, the people also met him. For they heard that he had done this miracle. They knew he had done this miracle, and it was getting published abroad. And the Pharisees hated it. From all earthly points of view, Jesus should have stayed hidden. He knew it. He, he knew what was coming. But at this moment, as life is coming to an end, we see another principle of grace. We see simply that God looks for opportunities to extend His grace. Turn over to chapter 13. In chapter 13, verse 1, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour was come, that He should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hand, and that He was come from God and went to God, He riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and gird himself. After that he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. As Jesus makes his way around the room, he goes from individual to individual of his disciples. And the phrase there, he took up a towel, is that idea of a servant, a slave, one who is in a position of bondage, one who had no freedom, no rights, and he takes this towel and he goes around and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. At this moment, Jesus is about to do something far greater. He's days away from dying on the cross. He's days away from going back to his father, and he knows it. At this moment, all Jesus really needs to do is sit there. That's it. The feast was a picture all the way back in Egypt about that one that would come to take care of sin's debt. And all he had to do was sit there. They could have enjoyed the feast together. They could have sang a hymn and gone out to the Mount of Olives. But Jesus teaches us something about grace. Grace always looks for opportunities to show grace. You see, God wants to extend his grace, and at this moment, Jesus does exactly that. Jesus goes around and begins to wash disciples' feet. He comes to Peter, verse 6, and Peter said unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore he said he, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet, he had taken his garments and was set down again and said unto them, 
Know ye what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Follow my example, Christ says. At this moment, all I have to do is sit here. But as I sit here, I see a need. I know what's about to happen, and I know that in just a matter of minutes, there's going to be this scattering. But at this moment, I need you to understand that grace looks for opportunities to be good to people. And as he goes around and he washes feet, he comes to Judas. Now, we don't know the order. We know that in some ways Judas had to be near the Lord, whether he was halfway around the table on the other side, whether he was right next to him, because that he dips in the uh, cup at the same time. But we know that Judas is near. But when the Lord comes to wash Judas' feet, I have to wonder, this is just purely my imagination, I just wonder if he was sitting right next to Peter. Because it's, Peter, you're clean, but not all. By the way, Judas, let me wash your feet. But he comes to Judas knowing that Judas is not clean. Knowing what Judas is going to do. He could have called him out because the other disciples did not know. So much so that when he leaves, they assume he's going to do the Lord's work. But the Lord gets down on his knees and he washes Judas' feet. You see, God looks for opportunities to extend grace. Judas, this is who I am. This is who you're going to betray. I love you, Judas, even if you don't love me. You see, we get this misunderstanding that sometimes we feel like God is against us. And when adverse situations come in life, we make this assumption that God is angry at us. But do you understand that God is not a begrudging giver? God doesn't just give good to the people he likes. God is good. And at this moment, if there's ever a person that Jesus could have been angry towards, it was Judas. But knowing what he was going to do, he looks for that opportunity to just be good to him. Let me wash your feet. It's not as if you deserve this. It's just, I want to give it. You see, the washing of the feet is pictured here not as salvation, but as fellowship. This is, look, we have entered into a relationship through the blood of Jesus Christ at the moment we accept Him as Savior. At that moment, we have a relationship with God. The picture here is keep the fellowship with God. And Jesus extends grace to try and help Judas understand he needs the fellowship. And yet, Judas rejects him altogether. You and I, we should have a healthy relationship with God and a fellowship with Him that is day in and day out, that is constantly us coming to Him and saying, look, I need to be clean. I don't want this separation between us. I want us to have a healthy relationship. 
And the reason is because God's not a begrudging giver. He wants that relationship. And sometimes we feel like, well, I've done wrong, therefore God doesn't want me. And the reality is it's not true. God does want you, and he seeks out to help you. You see, for you and I, we have to come to a place to where we are so surrendered to God that it is not about my way, but it is about his way. You see, it may not be your way right away like it is at Burger King, but it's God's way all the way. You see, I I can have this idea that it's got to be my way right away. No. It's God's way. And when it's God's way, it's God's way all the way. And when I trust in it, and I recognize that His grace is in every step of my life, and that He is looking to be good to me, then when things come that are adverse, I don't have to look at those things as angry judgment from God. I look at them for what they really are. Grace extended in drawing me. Because when I go through adversity and I come out on the other side, often I can see it then. But when I'm close enough to God and I'm going through adversity, I can see it in the midst. And too often we look at problems and we focus on the problems instead of looking at God and saying, it is your way all the way. You are in control, I trust you, and you are a grace-giving God. And at this moment, I know you're being good to me. But here's what happens. We begin to get apart from God, just like Judas did. And instead of at that moment when Jesus is washing Judas' feet, instead of repenting, instead of saying, God, I'm so sorry, Judas then runs from God. He leaves and he goes away and he tries to get as far away from Jesus as he can. And he goes and he takes the money and he goes and he betrays the Savior. And you and I, because of the bent of our nature and that old flesh that we live with, we have this tendency to run. We have this tendency to run away from God. And when God is there trying to help bring us back into fellowship with Him, we just want to get further and further away. We keep running to things that we think will bring us joy. We keep running to things that bring a small amount of pleasure. And yet, in getting what we want right then, we lose what we want most. And we end up in a place so far from God. Do you understand that to run from God is to run from grace. When we come before God in grace, it is not as if there is a lack of fulfillment in grace. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. When you come to God, the grace that God gives is a complete Filling grace. It is not as if, oh, I'm not satisfied. I need something more. Any longing, any desire that I have that is not met, that is not satisfied, is a longing for something in God. And when I come back to God for that filling, then I am completely full. And God brings that filling in every aspect of my life. But too often, I come to God and Because I'm not clean, there's this broken fellowship, and therefore I don't find the satisfaction. And instead of dealing with the broken fellowship, I run somewhere else to try and find the satisfaction. 
and I end up running from God, and I'm running from grace, which is nothing more than God's goodness. And what I ought to do is run to God, because in God, in His very nature of who He is, is grace. And so when I run to God, I am running to His goodness. I am running to all that He is and His ability to satisfy and complete. When you go back and you look at the commandments, that's what the first commandment's all about, is I don't need anybody else. I just need God. And when you and I run from God, we are running from grace. We have young people who are here today, perhaps even some adults, who are here simply because someone else wanted them to be here. Perhaps mommy and daddy made you come today. It may be that a spouse is the one who twisted your arm to get you here today. And in your heart of hearts, you're thinking, I don't need this church stuff. I don't need this Bible stuff. I don't need this God stuff. And really what you're doing is you're running from goodness. And when we have any other message other than Christ is good news, we got the wrong message. So we are to run back to God. We are to run back to grace. You see, the closer you are to God, the more He shows you His grace. The closer you are to God, the more He shows His grace to you. And when you are close to Him, you see it in every turn. When you're far from Him, you don't see it at all. You see the problems. You see everything that is out there in this world that is the effect of sin on a people. And you look at it and you go, that's the problem. God's not taking care of business here. God's rejected me. When really, God is in complete control and He is drawing you. But you're so far from Him, you can't even see Him. Isn't it interesting, as you get older, and, and you get some distance from your parents, meaning you move out of the house, and maybe it's been a few years, and time passes, and, and you get back together, you start seeing things about them that are in you, and you just go, ooh, I didn't know I was like that. And, and, and you begin to see similarities where you thought, no, there's no way I, ooh, wait a minute, I do. When you're closer, you see it. When you're further away, you don't see it. When we are close to God, we see it. We see His grace. We see His goodness. We see it all around us. But when we get away from God, we don't see it. And it's what makes it so hard. Because most of the time, people who reject God are people who are so far away from Him they can't see Him. And what they're wanting is they're wanting to see him without coming to him. And it's not the way it works. No, God gives grace, even where it is not earned. And grace is all around us. But we have to open our eyes to see that grace. But in this moment, as Jesus comes to Judas, we see another principle. Not just that here at the Last Supper, the Lord did not have to do this, but He looked for an opportunity to show grace one more time. But we see another principle that is so absolutely true. Grace has no end. It has no limit. If there was ever a limit to grace, wouldn't it be kneeling down before Judas? Wouldn't it be when you're on the cross, when you're dying, 
Wouldn't it be when you're Stephen and you're being stoned because of your belief in Christ? Wouldn't that be the end of grace? No. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. As Stephen's being stoned, his heart's burden is for the people stoning him. You see, grace has no end. It has no limit. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of how far you have strayed, regardless of how long it's been since you addressed God directly, regardless of what you've been told, regardless of how you feel, grace awaits you. Grace that is far greater than all your sin. We sing the song, but do we genuinely believe it? We looked at David last week and we looked at all that David had done. We looked at the sin that had piled up in his life in this area, and yet God extends grace to him. And we look at Judas, the ultimate betrayal. In David, there is something different than in Judas. In David, there are these outward, sinful, rejecting God actions. But in David, there's a heart that when he's confronted, David weeps and he mourns. He says, I'm sorry. I messed up. He said, my bones wax old. I, I, I just, oh, God, I'm sorry I did this. You know what? A person who does wrong but has a contrite heart, they're a lot easier to deal with, aren't they? But when you kneel before the guy who hates you enough to sell you out, for death, who's hypocritical enough to sit there among all of these other people who love you and to pretend like he does too, to sit there in front of the man who you know his next action and you know his heart of hatred towards you better than he even knows it. To know the man that you say it is better for him that he had never been born. And to wash his feet. That's different. That's harder. That's a rejection that's personal. That's hard to get past. And yet at that moment, Jesus washes his feet anyway. Why? Because grace has no end. It has no limit. You see, as long as you are on this earth, there is room and time for grace. You don't think that's true? Follow the story out. In just minutes, Judas goes out. In a matter of hours, Christ is there in the garden praying. And at that moment, in come the soldiers marching in. As they come in, the disciples are in fear. Peter goes to kill one of them. He cuts off Melchizedek's ear. What does the Lord do? He reaches down and he puts his ear back. At this moment, as the soldiers say, who are you? He says, I am. The soldiers fall down as dead men. He says, it's okay, get up, get up. Look, you come with me, sword spirits. I was with you daily in the temple, but I'll go. Do you think the soldiers were gentle with him as he went? 
We think sometimes back in the Old Testament about Samson and the power with which he just shook men off. Jesus, in an instant, could have obliterated the entire army. And yet he walks. And he walks to be tortured, to be beaten, to be crucified. And as he hangs on the cross in physical agony that we do not understand, in spiritual agony that we could never comprehend, he looks at the guy on the cross. He says, grace has no end. It has no limit. This guy's over here, and he yells, hey, we deserve to die. We deserve to be here. He doesn't. And Jesus looks at this guy, and he says, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. He didn't deserve grace. He deserved death. He didn't have time for grace. He was dying. But he got it anyway. And we go through life, and we mess up, and we just do things we shouldn't do, and we know it, we get ourselves all wound up and angry and mad, and we pull away from God, and we hide as if he can't see what's going on so that we don't get called out for our sin. God's going, stop. Don't, don't do that. Look, if I can wash uh, Judah's feet, I can wash yours. I, I can bring us back to fellowship too. I don't deserve it. You're right. You don't, but neither did this guy. And he knew he didn't deserve it. He knew he deserved to die. And he told it. But yet at that last possible minute, as he hung there, he said, I'll take that grace. I'll take it. I don't deserve it. But if I can end up with you today, I'll take it. When we're here and we're so wound up and we're so messed up and we're so in our own heads, take the grace. Just take the grace. And yet we go, but I want to earn it. I, I want to start doing enough right. Hey, aren't there religions all over the world and in America built on that principle? You come in and you say the, not, the, the right thing enough times, you can be forgiven. You come in and tell this guy all about it, and you can be forgiven. You, you climb up the steps on your knees, you can be forgiven. You pay enough money, you can be forgiven. That's going to stop. What money did the criminal on the cross have to pay? He's got nothing. What right did Judas have? He's got none. But Jesus says, when it comes to grace, I look for opportunities to extend it, and it doesn't have limit. It is without end, and I want to give it to you. Take the grace. Take the gift. Don't be hard-headed. And yet, the pride of our hearts pushes God back. The pride of our hearts stands up in ourselves, and we reject grace. When you and I come to that place, where we come before God, we see. Grace has no end. It has no limit. Grace kneels down before Judas, the betrayer, the very man that would sell out the Savior in a matter of hours and washes his feet. It looks into his eyes with compassion. 
seeking to save that which is lost. God does not look at you and say, I'm done with you. I don't want you anymore. Now, God in His infinite wisdom has clearly taught us in Scripture that there's a point at which He can take you out of this world because you're done. There's a sin that is unto death, Scripture tells us. But that sin takes your breath away. You're done. And as long as you have breath, you're not there. And so this morning, you take a deep breath. You let it out. And you know you're a candidate for grace. Grace has no end. It has no limit. You've heard the message. Now I hope you'll respond to it. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior... Now's the time to bow your head and ask Him to save you. In John 6:37, Jesus tells us that He will not cast out anyone who calls upon Him. I hope that you will call on Him today. If you need help spiritually, we'd love to be of service to you. Leave us a message, would you? At hbcga.org or 770-974-9091. Our service times are 1045 on Sunday morning, 930 for Sunday school, 5 o'clock for the evening service, and then 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights. Our services are warm and welcoming, and you will feel right at home. Come and visit us here at Harvest, and call on us if you need us. God bless you.